Most of us at the feast renewed our commitment. We renewed our vision of tomorrow's world. And we rejoiced in God's festival. We also rejoiced in our calling. Now, as uh, Mr. Crockett emphasized last week, we need now to review the notes from the messages and lessons we learned at the feast. We must now strive to live more fully our calling, and we need to set goals for the coming year. We must also fulfill our very purpose in life. What is your purpose in life? Or I might put a little different emphasis on it. What is your purpose in life? That's the title of the sermon. Have you ever asked yourself, why am I living? Have you ever really taken the time to do that? I think most of us have. I remember when I was going to RPI back in around 1956, 1957, I was studying for a final exam at the end of the first semester. There was snow on the ground, and I, to clear my head, I took a walk around the block. And remember, I can still feel the crunching snow under my feet as I uh, walked around the block, and I looked up at the stars and asked that question. No, who am I? Why was I born? Where am I headed? I'd ask that question, I think, from time to time, but still sticks in my mind as a, a major point of uh, questioning. Sir John Eccles, who's a Nobel laureate in medicine and physiology, commented on the role of science in asking some of these basic questions, philosophical questions, if you will, or questions of truth. And this is reported in the U.S. News and World Report, December 10, 1984, page 80. Sir John Eccles stated, quote, We need to discredit the belief held by many scientists that, scientists that science will ultimately deliver the final truth about everything. Science doesn't deliver the truth. What it provides are hypotheses in an attempt to get nearer to truth. But scientists must never claim to know more than that. The scientific concepts that we have are always going to change as science progresses. So there is, however, scientific truth. And that is truth if it agrees with spiritual truth and God's revealed truth. Sir John Eccles went on to say, quote, if I can find the quote here, um, I'll come back to that a little later. He pointed out in his statements, let me find it here. Well, I'll come back to that later. But nonetheless, we know that science does not answer those questions for us. Uh, who does answer those questions for us? Some look to Eastern religions for the answers to those questions on why was I born or what is the meaning of life? I like BC comic strip from time to time, and of course, uh, they're not always hitting the mark, but in this case, BC by Johnny Hart, the two little ants are on an anthill, and, and one asks the other, he says, what is life, Jake? And Jake says, a defunct magazine. Or some of you know that Life magazine existed for quite many years. But then the next scene, the... Uh, the caveman climbs up the mountain and he's uh, going to great extent, sacrificed to get to the great guru who's going to have the answers to all the questions of life. So here's the guru sitting with his arms folded on the top of the mountain and the 
caveman says, Great guru, I have made this perilous trek to ask you the meaning of life. Hear me well, mortal. The meaning of life cannot be explained in a single trek or two, or a hundred, yea, even a thousand. Nor can it be explained to he who taketh not a single step, though he seeketh with vigor those secrets which... Then the caveman interrupts him and says, In other words, you haven't got the foggiest, right? (laughs) And the guru says, Hey, man, it's a living. (laughs) No, they don't always have the answers to the questions that are so profound and so necessary and so very important to all of us. But God does give us the answers. And, of course, David asked that question. We've read it many times, but let's turn back there to Psalm 8. Psalm 8. Around Charlotte and around uh, other big cities, we don't get to see the stars as you can in a desert place. There is light pollution, as it's called, but every once in a while when we have the opportunity to be on uh, a mountain where there is no lighting from the cities to cloud our view of the heavens, uh, we would also feel like David felt. In verse 3 of Psalm 8, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him or you visit him? So he asked that question. He couldn't see. He looked up there and he saw the awesomeness of the moon, the stars, and he started to think in terms of comparison. How small are we? How big are we when we look at the planet Earth or we look at the stars and the moon? He said, what is man that you're mindful of him? And if this vast universe, who am I? What am I, this little little ant here on planet Earth? And the son of man that you care for him. For you have made him a little lower than the angels and have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And here David was inspired by God to really prophesy of what was going to be the ultimate result but was not clarified until Paul wrote the book of Hebrews in the second chapter. Then we come to understand what David really meant. But because in Hebrews it says we see not yet all things put under him. But God gave mankind certain responsibilities. He gave him dominion over the physical realm. You put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passes through the paths of the sea. I remarked earlier about a year ago, a year and a half ago, my wife and I were at SeaWorld in Orlando, and just to see these young women, maybe... uh, you know, no more than 120 pounds, I would guess. And yet they were commanding and instructing four-ton whales in this huge pond there, this huge pool. And when you have a human being, a woman, being able to command a four-ton whale, it was astounding. And I would encourage all of you, if you ever have an opportunity... Uh, to go to SeaWorld and to see this phenomenon. Human beings were given dominion over the animal world. O eternal our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Well, David wondered what about his purpose. 
And others have asked the same question. There are those who've been on the uh, Apollo 11 mission, the first mission that landed a man on the moon. All in the Apollo mission said the following. They were returning back from having been on the moon. Personally, in reflecting the events of the past several days, a verse from Psalms comes to me. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him? So even the astronaut Buzz Aldrin coming back asked that very same question. Have you asked that question? Let's take a look at what some young uh, second graders responded, and I hope that our second graders here would be able to answer the question. And in the Bible study this afternoon for our youth, perhaps uh, we can have that question asked and answered. But this was at Imperial Schools back around uh, 1991. And this question was asked to the grade school students. What was their idea about the purpose of human existence? Tiana said, to help the environment. So most likely they must have had classes on uh, the environment earlier because that was on her mind. Without us human beings, then the plants would die. <laughs> then Terza said, uh, in answer to the question, what is the purpose of life? Um, to be happy. Nathan said, to serve God. Now, for a second grader to say that his purpose in life is to serve God is remarkable. Christina said, to be in life. Now, whatever that means, to be in life. Jeremy said, so we can take care of the earth. Lalani said, because God wanted us to be here. And Ryan said, to, <laughs> thinking of the future, Ryan said, to carry on another generation. Then Jennifer said, to enjoy it, to enjoy the earth, and to help keep it nice. And Michael said, that's a good question. <laughs> and Toby said, to have a good time. So even at that young age, here are some children who are thinking more deeply than perhaps some of us do, even as adults. We also asked uh, students, I, at the time we were doing a World Tomorrow television program, and we went out to Pomona College in Southern California where I interviewed some of the students. And uh, I'll just share a couple of their responses to the purpose of life. These are college students. How did they answer the question? Heather said, the purpose for life is to have a good time and to make other people feel good and to try and learn something and teach other people. So even though she wants to have a good time, she wants others to have a good time too. Leslie, I think we're here to do something, and I guess the hardest part for most people is trying to find out what it is. Sam says, to be happy, definitely. I mean, there's no, there's nothing else that you need to worry about, really, except other people being happy with you. Deborah says, that's a tough one. Um, I don't really have a pithy answer for that. I just think we need to be here and enjoy our time here and that hopefully not take away from other people and our planet more than we give back. So you see, there's a certain level of understanding, a certain level of purposefulness in their lives, but it's limited. It doesn't go beyond to understand where we are in the universe. Veronica says, and this is a pretty good one in terms of her Christian values, 
Veronica says, well, my purpose in life as a Christian would be to, you know, live as well as I can the way Jesus said, to live and try to become more like him, which is what I believe. Other than that, I don't really see much purpose. So would you be able to answer those questions if we on Tomorrow's World Television program came by and put a microphone in front of you and asked you, what is your belief in the purpose of life? What would you answer? Now, I've asked you to do this before, but it's been some decades before. So I want you to take just a 30 seconds or a minute right now, and for those of you who have a notepad, to write down a sentence or two in answer to the question, what is the purpose of life? For those of you who don't have a pen or pencil or paper, uh, just formulate an answer in your mind. What is your purpose in life? Or what is the purpose of life? Okay, I'd be interested to uh, hear your answers after services today. You could ask one another. I will share with you some of the answers that were given at a spokesman club back in Houston some years ago. Mr. Barry Turner, in answer to the question of what is the purpose of life, said, to become love, and the church teaches you how to do that. Mr. James Quinters said, to prepare ourselves to reign with Christ and to serve future generations. Mr. Pat Patterson is now deceased. Training to be shepherds. I've been training to be a sheep herder. Mr. Wes Metzler, we're learning to be citizens of the kingdom of God. Mr. Larry Magaha, to prepare to serve in the kingdom of God, as Jesus said, to do the will of him that sent me. Even though she's not a member of the club, uh, I asked her, Mrs. Catherine Ames said, the purpose of life is to prepare for eternal life in the family of God, to prepare by learning that this truth and his truth and his way is right above all, and to learn that one's own way apart from God does not bring lasting happiness, and to learn to believe and obey God. So these are fairly inspiring answers, and I'm sure that the ones you've written down today are as well. Let's turn to John, the 8th chapter, John 8. And again, we know where the answers are. We know where to search for the answers. As Jesus said in John 8 and verse 32, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Yes, we know that the Bible is God's Word, that it is truth. John 17, 17 says, Thy Word is truth. But verse 31, Then Jesus said to the Jews which believed on Him, If you continue in My Word, then are you My disciples indeed. So we go to the Bible for the true answers to the question of where, what is truth, what is the purpose of, of life. Let's... Uh, 
turn now to Acts 17th chapter, Acts 17. And uh, here the Apostle Paul had to face philosophers. There were the Stoics, the Epicureans. Here in Acts, the 17th chapter. Acts 17, that was on Mars Hill, as you recall. We had the opportunity of being there the, uh, for the, on our way to the feast in uh, Jerusalem and Israel in 1998. It was the part of the global church of God at that time. There were about uh, 40 or 50 of us that got to go to Athens and to uh, go up near the Parthenon and look down and see where Mars Hill was. Verse 16 of Acts 17. Now, when Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore, he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. And some said, what will this babbler say? Others said, he seems to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, or Mars Hill. May we know what this new doctrine whereof you speak is? For you bring certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. They were just philosophizing. They had their own opinions. They didn't really focus in on truth. They didn't have the source of truth. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, You men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar to, with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore you ignorantly worship. Him declare I unto you. So Paul was pretty straightforward with them. They were worshiping ignorantly. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwells not in temples made with hands. Neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he gives to all life and breath in all things. Now this is a fundamental truth that those pagans may or may not have embraced as a as a belief but paul is making it very plain it is made of one blood all nations of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation that they should seek the lord now we have individual purposes personally purpose personal purposes in life but this is a national purpose the united states should know its national purpose and, of course, that's declared or that's outlined in uh, Deuteronomy, the fourth chapter, that this nation should have been keeping God's commandments and all the other nations would see how we are prospered, how we are moral, and where that morality and prosperity comes from. And we are failing, of course, in that national purpose. But one other national purpose is right here, verse 27, that they should seek the Lord... If haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Is that true with you? Is it true with me? For in him we live and move and have our being. 
as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. He was quoting from a pagan poet. So it's not wrong to uh, use a common or to find a common ground with people when you're trying to help them to understand truth. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like under gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's devices. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. So we see one of the greatest purposes for all human beings is that we are to seek Him, as it says in verse 27. And all men everywhere should repent. And of course that includes us, and that's a part of the message that we are giving to the world. The same message that Christ brought, repent and believe in the gospel is what Jesus said. So here were these pagan schools of thought, these philosophers, the Epicureans who believe that you should enjoy life, the Stoics who tried to control their expressions, the skeptics who thought it was vain to ask questions, and of course to ask the question about what is the meaning or purpose of life would have been to them a vain question because no one, according to them, knows the truth. No one can answer the truth. But God grants us the ability and the opportunity to know the truth. Turn back to Romans, the first chapter, Romans 1, in verse 20. More recently, and I've mentioned this at the feast in a couple of locations, I may have mentioned it here in Charlotte before, I'm not sure whether I did or not, but at least uh, this message is going out to our brethren around the world, and uh, they will uh, perhaps get to hear some of this uh, information for the first time. Again, the Apostle Paul is saying that uh, in answer to the greatest question which uh, will be asked in the youth Bible study after services, um, there may be more than one great question that, uh, that can be asked. But God says here through the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle Paul is saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, verse 16, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And he goes on to say that it is written, The just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth or suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. When it comes to proving God's existence, it is manifest to them, God says. Here's the whole creation. You ought to be able to look at the creation and understand who and what God is, not only that, but to even more clearly to understand His eternal power and Godhead. Right there in verse 20. Now, more recently, a DVD uh, has come out, and a very interesting one. It's called The Privileged Planet, The Search for Purpose in the Universe, basically put out by the Discovery Institute and the institute that uh, emphasizes intelligent design. The uh, authors of the book, and of course uh, they are interviewees in that particular DVD, but this is the book, The Privileged Planet, um, rather technical perhaps in part, but I will quote 
from it how our place in the cosmos is designed for discovery. Guillermo Gonzalez and J.W. Richards, The Privileged Planet. It was called that because as you look back into the history of astronomy, Copernicus was the one who revealed or who was able to establish that contrary to what was believed before that the earth was the center of the universe and the center of our solar system, that the sun was the center of the solar system and the earth went around the, uh, went around the sun. The Copernican principle was one that uh, stated that the earth and the solar system, because the earth is now going around the sun, is not the center of the earth, that it's insignificant that there are many other planets just like it, and so it has no major significance in the universe. Let me just read a couple quotes, and by the way, uh, on page 238 is a photo uh, that was taken, uh, it's called an Earth Rise by Bill Anders on December 24, 1968, and this is uh, from going around the moon. Now, this is a vertical uh, orientation of the photo, that is right on the cover of the November-December 2005 Tomorrow's World magazine. So that was the photo that was taken and uh, gives you a a perspective that very few people have. So Gonzalez and Richards write uh, some very interesting comments. Let me give you a couple. This is from page 248. Sometime in the 20th century, however, Einstein's cosmological principle came to be identified with a subtly different idea, the Copernican principle, also known as the principle of mediocrity or principle of indifference. In its modest form, the Copernican principle states that we should assume that there's nothing special or exceptional about the time or place of Earth in the cosmos. In other words, we're just random and there may be other planets, myriads of other planets just like us, and we're nothing special. The authors write, it has a closely related, more expansive philosophical or metaphysical expression, however, which says, quote, we're not here for a purpose, and the cosmos isn't arranged with us in mind. Our metaphysical status is as insignificant as our astronomical location, end of quote. So you see the result of that philosophy is that we're nothing and uh, we don't really have a purpose here. We're all random. We're all uh, here by chance. Uh, The authors go on to say, metaphysically, this denial of purpose is usually accompanied by naturalism, the view that the impersonal material world is all there is and that it exists for no purpose. In other words, there is no spiritual dimension. And when you're stuck with materialism, you are stuck in ignorance. The authors go on to say, still only in the modern age has such a denial of design and purpose in nature enjoyed official majority status among the cultural elite. To question it publicly is virtually to guarantee an end to cocktail party conversations and invitations for that matter. So that might have happened to these, uh, the authors themselves. Now, I would, uh, again, encourage you to uh, get a copy of the Privileged Planet DVD. Uh, It interviews uh, others, SETI, for example, uh, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, that major project that 
has radio telescopes beamed out into the universe trying to get messages back that would uh, symbolize there's intelligence out there. The authors conclude their book, and it has uh, quite a few appendices as well as a very good uh, uh, index for the book, The Privileged Planet. But let me just read the concluding paragraph of their book. And yet, as we stand gazing at the heavens beyond our little oasis, we gaze not into a meaningless abyss, but into a wondrous arena commensurate with our capacity for discovery. Perhaps we have also been staring past a cosmic signal far more significant than any mere sequence of numbers, a signal revealing a universe so skillfully skillfully crafted for life and discovery that it seems to whisper of an extraterrestrial intelligence immeasurably more vast, more ancient, and more magnificent than anything we've been willing to expect or imagine. That's the God we worship. He's God Almighty. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth and this vast, awesome universe. The points that these authors bring out, there's several and I won't go into all of them, but one is that there are habitable zones in the solar system. In other words, if there were to be complex life, there is only one section in the solar system where a planet, not the other planets, but only planet Earth, can support complex life. And not only then in the solar system, but in the Milky Way galaxy itself is there only a habitable zone where complex life could survive. Beyond that, one of the major points that they are bringing out, the cosmos is designed for discovery, is that of all the planets where complex life could exist, planet Earth is the only one or one of the few where a human being or an observer can look out and observe the Milky Way galaxy and can observe beyond the Milky Way galaxy and see the universe. And as uh, Dr. Doug Winnale's uh, book, booklet on the proofs of God, uh, uh, the real God, Proofs and Promises, brings out, there are others, philosophers and scientists, who realize that the universe, this awesome gigantic universe that goes for hundreds of millions of light years out into space, this awesome universe was created for human beings. And only can human beings on this planet be able to observe, according to their research, and um, observe discovery, scientific discovery, to see our place in the universe. So contrary to the Copernican uh, principle that this earth and all of we, all of us on it, are here just as random accidents is totally wrong. God has created an awesome purpose. And he says right here that, in verse 20, the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So what is our purpose in life? God gave us the two great commandments, and that purpose has to do with relationships. We love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We love our neighbors as ourselves. You know, my wife and I uh, yesterday were uh, looking out the window. In fact, uh, 
my wife was praying by the window in the back of our house, and there's a woods in the back, and below on the second, we were up on the second story with our bedroom, and down below is a, a wooden deck. And we have, uh, my wife likes kittens and cats, and across the street are uh, Mama Kitty and her three kittens. And Mama Kitty brings the three kittens behind our house to go hunting and teaching her, their, her kittens how to hunt there in the woods. One day I saw Mama Kitty coming uh, proudly back across the street. You know, she was really strutting, and she had a little lizard hanging from her mouth. I think she was very proud of her catch. But anyway, the little kittens came out of the woods yesterday as uh, my wife was praying by the window, came up the stairs on our wooden deck because my wife uh, likes to give them milk in the morning once in a while. And I think Mama Kitty has trained the kittens where they can get some milk. But anyway, um, Catherine, I was praying by the bed, and she says, come on over here. So uh, I looked down. We started talking, and Mama Kitty looks up at us, you know, just very expectant. And then the two yellow kittens came by, and they are looking up at us. And then the little black kitten got up on the table and looked up at us. And here are these four sets of eyes staring up at my wife and me very expectantly. And it was so touching. It was just like, what does God the Father look when he sees his children looking up at him? Reminds me of a scripture, if you want to turn back to Psalm 123, Psalm 123, you know, it was just so, so moving and touching, and yet God says here, or through David, the psalmist, Psalm 123, unto you lift I up mine eyes, O you that dwell in the heavens. So there's those little kittens looking up. Of course, they don't have understanding. They had expectation. Behold, as the eyes of servants look unto the hand of their masters, and as the eyes of a maiden unto the hand of her mistress, so our eyes wait upon the eternal our God until that he have mercy upon us. Now we look up into the heavens expectantly as well, but with understanding, because God has given us such awesome promises that he wants us to have a relationship with him, a very personal relationship with him. That relationship is also described in many ways here. You read through the Psalms, but let's take a look at Jeremiah, the 13th chapter. It's to me, uh, in the King James, it was uh, rather a remarkable image, but Jeremiah 13, verse 11. And I'm reading here from the King James Version. For as the girdle cleaves to the loins of a man, so have I caused to cleave unto me the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah, says the Eternal, that they might be unto me for a people and for a name and for a praise and for a glory, but they would not hear. The image is that of a very intimate relationship. The New King James Version has as follows, For as the sash clings to the waist of a man, so have I caused the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to cling to me. Have you ever thought about yourself as clinging to God, as being like a belt around God's waist because you're hugging Him, you're that intimate, you're that close to Him? You think about Jacob wrestling with the one who was the eternal. And Jacob would not let the eternal go, and he changed his name to Israel because Jacob had prevailed. You can read about that wrestling match back in Genesis. 
And so I, in the past, and I've encouraged uh, you as well in the past, that in your prayers, there is a time when you wrestle with God and you don't let him go because you have an urgent request, you have a crisis, and you are holding on to God. You are cleaving to him. God says, I've caused the whole house of Israel, the whole house of Judah to cleave to me. But they would not listen. They would not hear. We know that our relationship is dependent, and we've heard many times, and we'll repeat it time and time again. It's through that personal contact through prayer. David, Daniel, I won't turn there, but Daniel 6.10, you know that circumstance when he was threatened by being thrown to the lion's den if he ever asked a request of any god other than the king. And so in his upper room with his window open towards Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as was his custom since early days. Daniel prayed on his knees three times a day. And of course, David said in Psalm 55, 17, which we sing in our evening and morning and at noon, I will pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. A couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, I gave a sermon on read the manual. In other words, read the book, read the Bible. Uh, We've been uh, disappointed and talking with some ministers about some church members not really reading the Bible as they should. And I want to exhort and encourage all of you, brethren, to read the Bible daily as a way of life. We breathe air every day. We drink water every day. We eat food every day. And in John 6, where he's talking about being the bread of life, Jesus said in John 6:63, "The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life." So we talk to God by praying to Him, but we need to listen to God as He speaks to us through His Word, the Bible. Now, again, it's not necessarily a sin if you miss a day in reading the Bible, but yet it is a way of life if you are wanting God to teach you, to instruct you to give you understanding, to give you truth, then I would hope that all of you would. And I think when I gave the survey here, there was a a big majority of you who did say you did read the Bible daily. And I want to again encourage all of you to do that. There are many ways, of course, going about it. And I encourage you at that time to even perhaps purchase Bibles for your children. As we read in 2 Timothy 2.15, that from a childhood, as Paul wrote Timothy, from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. From childhood. And thankfully, we have a youth Bible study after services. And, and uh, as we had there in uh, Clearwater, Mr. Ray Clore challenged the uh, children to uh, recite the Ten Commandments. And... Uh, they had to memorize the uh, Ten Commandments long form, and uh, I believe it was long form. Was No, short form? Okay, well, we'll let them do it short form. Uh, they had to memorize the Ten Commandments short form, and if they did, were able to recite it to a minister, they got a certificate. And if they were able to repeat one or two or three commandments, they got a candy kiss for every one of the Ten Commandments that they could recite to a minister. 
But I know way back in, uh, you know, imperial schools back in uh, Pasadena, first graders, you know, uh, first graders got stars for memorizing the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, uh, verses 1 through whatever it is, 18 or 19, long form. And uh, first graders can do it. I'm sure we can as well. There, uh, <clears throat> there are many different kinds of programs, of course, and terms of reading the Bible. I emphasized a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, the whole idea of our Bible study course. And I hope all of you are considering, if you're not taking the Bible study course, to consider that and to realize that there is an inspired order of the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the writings, that you could read through the Bible in the inspired order. Of course, that's Luke 24, 44, where Jesus said, he spoke about those things concerning him in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms concerning me. It's called the tripartite division of the Old Testament. We discussed that at that time. But I know that some of us uh, let distractions bother us. We're in a whirlwind world. We are an information overload. We're living in a time where we just are inundated with messages, thousands of messages through all the various media every, every day. And as uh, Mr. Crockett pointed out last week, uh, you need to set goals in terms of setting aside time for Bible study as well. But you need to set time aside to think to meditate. Mr. Meredith gave a sermon on meditation here some time ago. And here is uh, a quote from a sociologist, Todd Gitlin, the Wall Street Journal, May 8, 1990, concerning our whirlwind rat race world. Quote, people are submitting themselves to time-devouring technology. We're a nerve-wracked society where people have difficulty sitting back and thinking of the purpose of what they do, end of quote. So we just get so busy, we just don't stand back and try to see the, the forest for the trees. Robert Banks in the book, The Tyranny of Time, When 24 Hours is Not Enough, page 66, wrote, quote, Those who are caught up in the busy life have neither the time nor the quiet to come to understand themselves and their goals, since the opportunity for inward attention hardly ever comes, many people have not heard from themselves for a long time. Those who are always on the run never meet anyone anymore, not even themselves. But thankfully, God gives us the Sabbath, and those who are keeping God's Sabbath do have time to meditate. We know what our purpose is. We know why we're here on earth. There was a song back in the... Uh, I believe it was in the 60s, and it was rather a plaintive song. It was called, Is That All There Is? It was sung by Peggy Lee. It was referred to by Ira Burkow in the New York Times when Chris Everett Lloyd, who was a, a star tennis player, was starting to question her life. She uh, was married to British tennis player John Lloyd, quote, we get into a rut, we play tennis, we go to a movie, we watch TV. But I keep saying, John, there has to be more. The uh, author Ira Burkow writes, but she believes that fame, fortune, and 146 professional tennis championships 
the record are not enough. In the background of her life, one may hear the strains of the song, Is that all there is? She says, I'm still searching. I I looked up the words. It's a quite lengthy one, but I won't uh, read all of it from the lyrics of the song, Is That All There Is? Part of it was spoken, and then the song Peggy Lee would sing in this plaintive uh, mode and mood of the, uh, the chorus. Spoken. I remember when I was a very little girl, our house caught on fire. I'll never forget the look on my father's face as he gathered me up in his arms and raced through the burning building out to the pavement. I stood there shivering in my pajamas and watched the whole world go up in flames. And when it was all over, I said to myself, Is that all there is to a fire? Then the chorus is sung. Is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball, if that's all there is. It's just like, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we'll die. And that's quoted twice in the Bible, by the way, that that particular phrase. Then I'll just share one more uh, of the spoken areas. I know that you must be saying to yourselves, if that's the way she feels about it, why doesn't she just end it all? Oh, no, not me. I'm in no hurry for that final disappointment, for I know just as well as I'm standing here talking to you, when that final moment comes and I'm breathing my first breath, I'll be saying to myself, is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friends, let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball, if that's all there is. Very sad, very pathetic. And yet that is what Chris Everett Lloyd was, in a sense, asking at her point in her life of that time. She had all these tennis championships, was able to do most anything she wanted to, and just said, is that all there is? There's got to be more in life. Who else asked that question? Who else did the analysis? Well, of course, King Solomon did. Let's turn back there to... Ecclesiastes briefly, and he had it more than anyone. He experienced building projects, so he was not just, he he experimented with wine, he experimented with women, he experimented with song, and yet, what did he say? He said, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That's Ecclesiastes 1 verse 2, says the preacher. All is vanity. Or, as he describes it later on, it's just a striving after wind. Chapter 2 describes his pursuit of human pleasures, that he gave himself to wine, to wisdom, to folly, to great works and builded houses and vineyards and gardens and orchards and trees, planted trees, made uh, pools of water. He had servants and made servants and great possessions, Great and small cattle, verse 7. Verse 8, I gathered me all the silver and gold and treasures, men singers and women singers and delights of the sons of men and musical instruments of all sorts. So I was great and increased more than all they were before in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom retained with me. In verse 11, then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought and on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. What was his conclusion? Of course, you know what his conclusion was. 
chapter 12, verse 13. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, or this is the whole man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. So Solomon had to learn that there was something more than just the physical pursuit of pleasure, that there's something deeper, and that deeper deeper purpose in life is a relationship with God and through Christ in us, a relationship with our neighbors, to grow in a characteristic and a mind and a nature of Christ himself. And that's in Romans 8, verse 29, that we are be to conform to the very image of Christ. That's God's purpose. And that major characteristic that God is and Christ is, is what? God is love, John 4, verse 8, and John 4, verse 16. And we must come be conformed to that image. We must be like God is. We need to exemplify the very nature, radiate the very fruits of the Spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, or self-control. I wrote a brief essay uh, years ago. I say brief, probably a little lengthy here. And uh, I would modify it and add to it and uh, perhaps uh, change some of it. But this is what I wrote some years ago in answer to the question. It was 1998. It appeared in the uh, Houston Church Bulletin where I was pastoring at the time. A brief essay on the purpose of life. In response to God's calling, the purpose of life is to establish and cultivate an intimate relationship with God our Father, the Creator, and His Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Further, we are to zealously cooperate with God as He creates in us His perfect character of love and His divine nature. See 1 Peter 4.19 and 2 Peter 1, verses 3 through 4. Through Christ in us, we overcome Satan, self, and society, so that we now reflect God's nature, character, and glory. We, re- we reflect and manifest God's divine nature in our lives by loving Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbors as ourselves. We help others into the kingdom and into the family of God by preaching the gospel and fulfilling the commission Christ has given the church. Through the faith of Christ in us, we can then be ready to inherit the kingdom of God, the earth, all things, the universe, and glory as immortal, glorified children of God's eternal family. We look forward to being born into the family of God at the return of Jesus Christ to be kings and priests in the royal family of God for all eternity. Now, perhaps you would write something similar, and even your one-sentence or two-sentence answers in response to the question can be very meaningful to you and to all of us. Another approach that I've suggested to you in the past is at the end of your life, what would be your heritage? What would you pass on to others? What would you want as an epitaph on your tombstone? I've shared with you before that perhaps I would have on my tombstone, here lies Richard F. Ames. He was an overcomer and he turned many to righteousness. Now, that's what I'd like, 
It'll be on my tombstone. Uh, perhaps we'll live until Christ returns and there won't be a necessity for a tombstone. Uh, we'll see. But when you have a purpose in life, and I ask you the question, what is your purpose? That's part of my purpose. And all of us have committed ourselves to be a part of this great end-time work that God has called us to, to preach the gospel to the world, the good news of the coming kingdom of God, and the good news of salvation, that Christ died for us individually. He is the Lamb that takes away the sins of the world. That He was willing to be crucified, that He was willing to be scourged and have the flesh torn off His face and His body and to experience those stripes and that pain so that we could be healed. And he was willing to have a spear jammed into his side that the blood would rush out, the blood would, would cleanse all of us from all of our sins. And we're all a part of preaching that gospel to the world. God has given us an awesome privilege to understand the truth. So we are, in a sense, at an opportunity, have an opportunity for a new beginning as every feast rolls around. Uh, the fall season is also, in a sense, an opportunity to start a new beginning. So I want to ask you again, have you deeply thought about life's purpose? And what is your purpose in life? I hope that you will read, if you haven't already, and perhaps repeat uh, reading again, uh, the uh, Mr. Meredith's booklet, Your Ultimate Destiny. And to read also the booklet on the true gospel, which is such an excellent booklet that describes our mission and describes the truth. I hope that you're rejoicing in your relationship with Christ, your relationship to your Father in heaven, it says in Philippians 4.4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord, and again I say rejoice. We all have burdens, we all have problems, we all have frustrations, we all have crises, we all have pain. And yet, if you'll turn to uh, 1 Peter, the fifth chapter, he tells us what to do in our relationship to him. We cleave to him as a sash or, or a belt around his waist. And we cry out to him every day as... Jesus said back in, I believe it was Luke 18 or 19, will God avenge his elect who cry out to him night and day? And I hope that you are doing that. You're crying out to God day and night because we are living, even as Barna survey reported, that most churches are lukewarm. And he was talking about the evangelical Protestant world, that even those churches are lukewarm. We cannot afford any of us become lukewarm. We've just experienced an awesomely wonderful, inspiring feast. We're motivated to go forward. Yet we will be facing challenges this coming year as we did this past year. So he tells us here in verse 6 of 1 Peter 5, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, that he might exalt you in due time. We had our sermon by Mr. Meredith just a few weeks ago on fasting and seeking God. That was the weekly Sabbath just before atonement. Casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. It may be difficult to do, to think, well, I've got all these problems, but I've got to carry these problems myself. Yes, 
We are to bear one another's burdens, as it tells us in Galatians, the sixth chapter. And we are to carry our cross daily, as Jesus told us. But yet, if you can't solve your problems, you can cast your care, your anxieties upon him, for he cares for you. And then he tells us to be vigilant, because Satan the devil is going about as a roaring lion, seeking whom we may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. So as we go forward another year, we reflect back on the Feast of Tabernacles and our training as kings, priests, and judges. We realize that we are members of the body of Christ, the church. We are members of God's royal family, and our purpose is to help the world, those whom God calls, and eventually even the millennium, through the millennium, and on after that, the white throne judgment to help millions and billions of people into the kingdom of God. And we need to help one another in the church, the body of Christ, into the kingdom of God. And we need to help our families into the kingdom of God. The latest Tomorrow's World magazine has uh, an editorial by Mr. Meredith and I hope you've all read it. If you haven't, perhaps you haven't, no, you haven't even received your magazine yet, probably. But are you zealous for the truth? So we cannot let down. We cannot become Laodicean. We cannot become lukewarm. We need to be zealous for the truth. So let's live this coming year with purpose, determination. Let's grow spiritually. Let's fulfill our calling and our mission. Let's go forward in faith to fulfill God's purpose for all of us as a church and for each of us individually.